Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, for those of you who may be new, we are studying through this letter, uh, this first inspired letter from Paul. Uh, verse by verse, section by section, we usually are moving in a steady clip, bigger verses, more bigger chunks. Uh, this week and even next week, we will still be in this section. We're working through it um, a little bit more slowly because there's a lot here. And I think these are things that we haven't covered on uh, the Lord's Day. Uh, some of what we're going to talk about this morning is going to be, uh, haven't preached on it. We've taught in it in different contexts, but haven't preached on some of the specifics. And um, so we don't want to rush through it. We're not in any rush. As the Lord gives us opportunity, we want to study it and know it as deeply as possible. So we're, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 this morning, and we're looking at verses 10 to 17. And we made the case uh, last Sunday uh, that, uh, in just by way of introduction to this passage, that while our knowledge and our tools and our equipment for constructing homes and buildings uh, is as robust and sophisticated as it's ever been in human history, uh, it's interesting that the quality and the durability of what we build um, really couldn't be shoddier. Uh, much of construction today and uh, the way we build things is quite poor. We saw, and by way of introduction, that the, that, that is almost a, an analogy for uh, to reinforce this truism that just because something is novel does not mean that it is exceptional. Just because something is novel does not mean that it is exceptional. So often in our race, well, at least what we perceive as a race to the top, we are actually racing to the bottom. We are racing to the bottom. It's true on a practical level when it comes to construction or when it comes to manufacturing. Most of what's manufactured now is disposable and, and passing. It's not just true on a practical level, but it's also true when it comes to how we think about the church and how we think about the work of ministry. J.I. Packer prophetically warned decades ago against giving way to the spirit of this age, and he said that we need to be careful to fall vict- not to fall victim to the truth that this age push- pushes on us, that the newer is truer, or what is recent is decent, or that every shift of ground is a step forward, and that every latest word must be hailed as the last word on its subject. That's a wise counsel from a man who remained steadfast throughout his life and ministry. The, words, the world's wisdom, and especially the latest and greatest kind of philosophical thing that's being promoted, almost always, always explodes on the scene with some kind of a veneer of true wisdom. It looks like wisdom. If we have not put down deep roots in the Word of God for our own hearts, we are susceptible to being taken captive by that false wisdom, which is why Paul reminds the Colossian church in Colossians 2 verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. It is a warning. He says, less, basically, that the less mature Christian is more susceptible to being captivated by the world and the world's philosophies. We referred to it last week uh, as the aesthetic fallacy. The aesthetic fallacy, which is a belief that if something looks convincing, 
on the outside could be um, how something is presented. It could be who presents that idea. It could be kind of an appeal from a certain level of authority. Or even when something is presented in terms of something new or novel, that gives it a veneer of authenticity and, and it looks convincing. And therefore, the aesthetic fallacy says if it looks convincing, it must be taken seriously. This is how worldly wisdom gains a foothold in the life of the church. Things look like knowledge. Things look like truth. They look like the answer to what's ailing us. But the reality is, it's foolishness at its core. It is foolishness to the core. And that is what the Corinthian church was dealing with. They thought they were racing to the top by elevating superiority of speech, we saw in chapter 2, and persuasive rhetoric and, and cleverness and force of personality and even championing their preferred leaders in the church, boasting in men. And, and the reality is, though, while they thought they were racing to the top, in reality they were racing to the bottom and though they had this solid foundation laid by Paul, Jesus Christ, and him crucified, the foundation of their church was the true gospel. Yet they were now seeking to build Christ's church with the latest and greatest building materials, which in the end will be shown to be fleeting, cheap, and worthless. And so their pursuit of worldly wisdom had this had this veneer, this kind of external appearance of knowledge and truth and insight. And because it had this veneer of, of knowledge and wisdom, it made them say and do some really stupid stuff, which we are categorizing and unpacking as we move through this letter. Instead of faithfully preaching the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified, for the forgiveness of sinners and his victorious resurrection, they wanted more influential leaders to, to ascend to the level of uh, high places in, in the community, and, and they wanted to show the world that, that, you know, we're just like you. We're just like you are. And they, instead of walking in meekness and fear and trembling and a dependence on the Holy Spirit's power, like Paul talks about he did in chapter 2, they wanted men who, who could kind of go mano a mano with the rhetorical heavyweights of the day and those who could uh, issue the, the verbal takedowns. And, and they elevated and promoted those individuals. And instead of relying on the sufficiency of Scripture to incisively judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, which is what Scripture does, Hebrews says, they cast God's word aside and they were moving towards secular philosophies hoping against hope that the world would not sneer at them, that the world would not make fun of them or look down upon them as what they taught as foolishness. And Paul untangles all of that in the opening chapters. All of these things were bouncing around the Corinthian church. They were dealing with all of it. And we're still dealing with all of it now. It's still a problem in our churches today. We have to heed Paul's warning from Ephesians 4, verse 14. Because in that passage, he warns that there is an inherent instability to immaturity. There is an inherent instability that always tags along with spiritual immaturity. He says of spiritual children, they end up tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, 
by the trickery of men and by the craftiness of deceitful scheming. If there was ever a motivation in Scripture for you and I to grow up in Christ, that is it. That is it. You have a choice. You can either grow up into a mature, anchored, disciple-making follower of Jesus, or you will spend the rest of your days, Paul says, as an immature, hollow soul being tossed around here and there by every wind of doctrine. Those are the only two options. And that is what the Corinthians had chosen. That was the path they had chosen. As he writes to them in this letter, the vast majority of them had chosen the instability of immaturity. And what they were enamored with had this external appearance of real substance, knowledge, truth, wisdom. But on the inside, Paul says it's hollow, it's empty, and it's worthless. They were like a ship being tossed here and there by the wind. And Paul calls that out at the beginning of chapter 3. He unmasks their immaturity. In verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, I could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? For one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos. Are you not mere men? He said there's a childish way to think about the church and ministry, and that's fleshly. That's fleshly. And it, reply, it, re, it relies upon the world's wisdom, and it boasts in men instead of Jesus Christ. And he says its fruit in your midst is partisan rivalry, jealousy, and strife. On the other hand, there's a mature way to think about the church and its ministry, and he gets to that in verse 5 and 6. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? We are servants through whom you believed, as even as the Lord gave opportunity. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. The mature mindset, the disciple-making, anchored mindset is to have the mindset of a servant. We are servants, Paul says. As leaders, we are servants. As one another, we are to think of ourselves as servants. We are those he says in verse 9, who are fellow workers, we are laboring together under God in Christ. That's what he means there. Under God. We are in God's field laboring, sowing and watering gospel seed. The mature mindset, the mature Christian labors patiently. The mature Christian labors dependently for God to cause what growth he is going to cause. They don't boast in men. They don't boast and elevate man's wisdom, but instead boast in Jesus Christ and him crucified. Everything is God's. We saw everything is his. The ministry is his. Paul says we belong to God. Apollos belongs to God. The church definitely belongs to God. It is his body. And so at the end of chapter uh, uh, 3, verse 9, he says, you are God's field, God's building. In other words, it all belongs to him. You and I as the church are God's field. 
As servants, we plant, we water, and God causes whatever growth he's going to cause. He also says that we are a building. You and I as the church are God's building. As servants, then, we build up one another, 1 Peter 2 says, as living stones into a spiritual house to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Because everything belongs to God, particularly the church, which is his treasure possession, the scripture tells us. Paul continues here in our text, correcting and warning us in some of the strongest terms of anywhere in this letter. He is picking up this metaphor of the church as God's building at the end of verse 9, and what he says at the end of verse 8, how each one will receive his own reward according to his labor. And in uh, verses 10 to 17, we said last week, he's hammering a builder beware sign into the ground in the text. We need to beware how we are building, because if we are not careful, our labors will not stand the Lord's perfecting examination. The Corinthian church had shifted away from building with the imperishable materials of Jesus Christ and him crucified and had begun to build with the perishable wisdom of the world. And that was dividing and fracturing the church. And if we're not careful, we can make the same mistakes. We can make the same mistakes. So, Our text this morning begins in verse 10, where Paul says, According to the grace of God which is given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Now last time we looked at just verses 10 and 11, and we saw that there's only one foundation. One foundation. It's important to uh, just reiterate and clarify that the analogy of the church as a building here in this text, he's not talking about you and me individually, our bodies. Okay, He's talking about the church collectively. All of us together, shoulder to shoulder, assembled as the church. He's talking about the gathering of God's New Testament, a new covenant people. Jew and Gentile together in the church now. We corporately are God's building. Now, in chapter 6, he's going to tell us and use this word picture of us individually as the temple of God. And we'll deal with that when we get to chapter 6. But the context is, is crystal clear here. He is talking about the church collectively. And we know that because he says... You, at the end of verse 9, are God's field, God's building. The you is plural. Y'all are God's building. Okay, that's what he's saying. You are God's field. And the church then, he said, is built upon the one foundation, the only foundation who is anchored by the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. 
Verse 11, no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Before, building a, before raising a building up, a foundation has to be laid down. And that's what we talked about last Sunday. It is a warning to them. It is a warning to us. There's only one foundation. There's only one cornerstone. And that foundation is Jesus Christ. He suffered. He died. He rose again victorious on the third day, and he calls all men everywhere to repent and trust in him, to follow him. There's salvation in no one else. We made that clear. There's salvation in nowhere else. And it is the proclamation of that message, the gospel, that is the bedrock upon which Christ is building his church. Not man's wisdom. And what we're going to see as we look at the rest of this section is that Paul's elaborations and his exhortations in verses 12 through 17 to be careful how we build, those are very much connected to the character of the foundation. They're related to who Jesus is. You wouldn't build a straw hut on top of a bedrock foundation and expect that thing to stand. Why then would you build Christ's church with the cheap, perishable materials of worldly wisdom and then try and place that on the, on the, on the foundation of Jesus Christ? In him crucified. It just doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. So the way we build is very much connected to the character of the foundation. Who we're building upon. There can be no church without the foundation which has been laid. And Paul says that foundation is Jesus Christ. Now, having clarified the truth about the foundation in verses 10 and 11, now we can start working on building. And that's where he takes us in verses 12 to 15. We said there is one foundation, but now in verses 12 to 15, we see that there are two ways to build. Two ways to build. He says, now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, Wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he's built on it remains, he will receive a reward. And if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Now, just reading through that text... You might be asking, why do you say, Jeff, that there are only two ways to build? Because he lists six building materials. So um, why are there not six ways to build? Like maybe some people build with gold and, and others build with silver and others build with precious stones, right? Why two ways to build? Paul lists six different building materials. And what is the significance? You're probably asking yourself, what is the significance of each of these different materials? And that's the first question we want to answer this morning. I mean, how is gold different than precious stones? And how is hay different than straw as far as Paul's meaning? And so I just want to make a few points here to answer that question or to address that question in your mind. First, we need to understand that Paul is speaking figuratively here. I mean, that's obvious, but I'm just making that, that plain. Paul is speaking figuratively. This is a metaphor that he is kind of teasing out in these verses. We aren't building an actual structure of gold. 
or silver or precious stones or anything else. Um, the church, by the way, is never spoken about in the New Testament as a building, as a physical building. It's always people. Uh, so Paul, this is not, Paul is not speaking literally here about a building. There isn't, this isn't some verbal puzzle either. Because it is he's speaking figuratively, we don't necessarily have to dig up a hidden meaning behind every little thing in the word picture. This is not some verbal puzzle that we need to solve. We don't need to determine one-for-one one correspondence. Well, gold is whatever, and silver must be whatever. Okay? It's not an allegory. We don't interpret the Bible allegorically. So he's just speaking in metaphorical language. He's just speaking figuratively. Second, Paul's utmost concern in this whole picture is the people doing the building, not the building. Does that make sense? The, the concern here is the people doing the building rather than the building itself. To get bogged down in, well, what is the gold and what is the silver and what is this beyond the point. He says each, remember that the main idea here comes in the end of verse 10. Each man must be careful how he builds. So, and if you look through the text, just read through the text, you'll see again and again he says each man any man, each man, any man, any man, all through the text. So there's this repetition of indefinite pronouns all throughout the text. And we know just basic Bible interpretation. When you see something repeated, that's significant, is how would you understand the text. The, give us Those words give us the emphasis of the passage. He's more concerned about each man than he is about each building material. That's his point. Lastly, I say that there are two ways to build because Paul's own explanation in verses 13 to 15 put everything into two boxes. Paul gives us the outline. There are two boxes that he puts everything in. There are two materials that remain. There are those that, or excuse me, there are two building materials. One remains and the other burns up. So he puts everything into two boxes. There are materials that withstand fire, gold, silver, precious stones, and there are materials that are consumed by fire, wood, hay, and straw. We know that just from common sense, our own intuition. So no question, there is a descending order of value in this list, but Paul really only has two categories in view. That's it. That's it. There are imperishable materials that are compatible with the bedrock foundation of the gospel, Jesus Christ and him crucified, and there are perishable materials that are only compatible with the wisdom of the world and belong to the spirit of this age. That's it. That's all there is. We cannot press the metaphor further than Paul. Okay? We cannot make the text say something Paul didn't intend it to say. That would mean we were reading into the text our own ideas. And that is Paul's point. There are only two ways to build Christ's church. You can build with the imperishable materials. Those are gold, silver, precious stones. And that's God's eternal wisdom grounded upon the foundation of the gospel. And you can build with the perishable materials, wood, hay, straw. And that is human wisdom in all of its various flavors, which we said, and Paul said, is destined for the trash heap of human history. So Paul expresses his concern here as their pastor 
for so many, he was their pastor for a year and a half, and now as their shepherd, as an apostle, he expresses his concern in this passage, which is my concern, that all our labors for Christ would be grounded upon the foundation of the gospel and that they would endure. That's his point. That's his desire. And that's my desire. I want your exertion for Christ to count. Because there is a day coming, Paul says, when how you and I have built will be tested. When God will evaluate whether we built his church with imperishable or perishable materials, and he will reward us accordingly. Verse 13, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Verse 13, the beginning part of verse 13 states the obvious. It's the then portion of the if-then of verse 12 and 13. Verse 12 is the if. If any man builds on the foundation with these things, then, verse 13, each man's work will become evident. It's, it's self-evident. It's, uh, it's like this. It, the conditional statement here, you could think of it, it's like if I were to say, if you touch the hot stove, you will be burned. It's... It's like if the condition one is true, then the second one is, is obviously going to happen. That must be true as well. The outcome is inevitable. What he says here is self-evident. If you build, how you build will eventually be clearly seen for what it is. And the word for work here, each man's work, is the same term that Paul uses throughout his letters to refer to his work for Christ and the gospel. In chapter 9, verse 1, he says, Are you not my work in the Lord? Speaking of the Corinthians. Uh, chapter 15 and verse 58, he says, Be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. He's talking about the gospel. Now here, in verse 13, he says, Each man's work will become evident. And it really, uh, contextually, means something closer to workmanship with an emphasis on the quality of the final product or the work of the working process. Your workmanship for Christ and the gospel in his church and for, for one another will become evident. God will take what has been hidden and make it plain in the present. Your workmanship will be evaluated. So the question we have to ask and answer, maybe the next question we need to ask and answer is this. When does this happen? When does this take place? And what kind of an evaluation or judgment is it? When does this happen? And what kind of a judgment is it? Because the Bible teaches that every believer and unbeliever will be resurrected and face a day of judgment before God when we will have to give an accounting for every thought and deed. Hebrews 4, verse 13 says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do, or literally, to whom we must give account. So there is a judgment 
or judgments that are coming for everyone, the believer and the unbeliever. But for us, all the specifics of that might be really hazy in your mind. It occurred to me this week, just looking through this, all those talk of resurrection and judgments, as you read through the New Testament especially, it can be confusing. It might even cause you to throw up your hands and just say, it doesn't matter. And so I want to help you better understand God's future timeline because God has revealed that to us. It's not a secret. There are things that God has not revealed to us, but there is a lot that he has. And so we need to understand it, and we need to know it, and we need to fill our hearts with it that we might have hope. Revelation begins with a promise in verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. In other words, it's meant to be understood and known and to bless and encourage and obeyed. Now, as with so many aspects of God's future plans, resurrection and judgment is multifaceted. It is multifaceted. Just as there are unfolding steps to God's program with things like the covenants, right? He made a covenant with Abraham, and then later he made a covenant with Moses, and then he made a covenant with David, right? That happened over a long period of time. Just as there are are steps to God's covenants, his kingdom plan is unfolding in stages, even salvation is unfolding for us in Stages, there's a past, present, and a future dynamic to our salvation. There's parts of it that were accomplished in the past. There are parts that are working itself out now. And there is a dynamics that are to be realized in the future. Just as that's true for covenants and the kingdom and salvation, in the same way, there are stages to the resurrection and judgments the scripture speaks about that are yet to come. And I don't just pull that out of thin air because it fits a system, Scripture actually teaches this. Scripture teaches it. Look with me at chapter 15 and uh, verses 22 to 24. As Paul writes to them later on in this letter, he says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Verse 23, But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, After that, those who are Christ that is coming, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom of God, uh, hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, which he has abolished, when he has abolished, excuse me, all rule, all authority and power. So just a cursory reading of that text showed that there is an order, there is an order to the resurrection. Each in his own order, verse 23 says. So stage one, you can call it stage one, is Christ. Christ is the first fruits, verse 23 says. Christ's resurrection from the grave on the third day was stage one of the resurrection. Stage two, he says here, are those who are Christ's at his coming. And we'll unpack that in just a moment. And then stage three is what he calls the end. The end. So, Scripture itself teaches that there are stages to God's resurrection. Now, look with me at Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. John says this, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw 
the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life, that's resurrection, and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. So we see right there in verse 4 and the beginning part of verse 5 that there are some who are raised at point A, stage 1 we'll call it, and others that are raised later, after. There's one group that reigns with Christ for a thousand years during his millennial kingdom, and there, are, there is another group who are not resurrected till after that time. So all it to say is Scripture teaches that there are stages to the resurrection, not making this up to fit our system. It's what the Scripture teaches. From this, then, and a number of other New Testament and Old Testament Scriptures, which we're going to skim through quickly, we can break down God's resurrection program in essentially into four parts. Okay, Four parts. So you've got to put your thinking caps on this morning. And if you're taking notes, um, you may want to jot this down. Uh, you may want to go back and listen to this recording at some point if, it, if we blow past something that you hadn't heard before. Uh, I'm not going to dig, dig, dig down into this, but I just want to give you the overview. And we'll cover this when we get to chapter 15 in more detail and even an equipping hour at some point. So phase one, we said, is Christ's earthly resurrection. That is, that's happened. The scriptures recorded that. Christ is the first fruits. That's phase one of the God's resurrection program. First, Christ is raised. Phase two, those who are Christ at his coming is those who are, Paul says, are those who are Christ at his coming. This is the resurrection of church saints, dead and alive. That is, believers in Christ who are part of the church from the point of Acts 2 onward. The resurrection of the church saints. This occurs at the rapture of the church. We see that in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 14 to 17. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. In Jesus is the operative phrase. This is believers in the church. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the Lord's coming will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we shall always be with the Lord. So the rapture of the church happens at the beginning of the tribulation. We do not go through the tribulation. Paul says in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10 of uh, 1 Thessalonians, For God has not destined us for wrath. We are to look forward to the Lord's coming. That would make no sense if we were to go through the tribulation period. We do not teach and believe the Bible instructs that believers in the church go through the tribulation. We are taken out of that. We are taken out of that. So there is a resurrection for believing saints, both dead and alive, and we are fit with resurrection bodies. This is before the tribulation. 
So that's phase two. Second, uh, phase three, while not occurring at the same time as the rapture, Old Testament saints and believers who give their life for the gospel during the tribulation are raised at the end of the tribulation, and they go through into the millennial kingdom with glorified bodies. Now, Daniel 12 tells us this. Again, looking at the scriptures are guiding us through this. And Daniel 12, verse 1, he talks about a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was nation. This is the tribulation. And then in verse 2, he says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but to the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So this is Old Testament believers. And, uh, and verse 13 goes on to tell us that they will receive their reward. Uh, Revelation 6, Revelation 6, the scene in heaven, uh, in verses uh, 9 to 11, there are martyrs for Christ, and they are crying out, and they say, Lord, they're asking, when are you going to avenge our death? And, uh, and so he, they have not been glorified at this point. They've died for their testimony for which they maintained. And they say, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood? So they are in heaven. They have not been given resurrection bodies. When do they receive them? When the Old Testament saints receive them at the end of the tribulation. And they pass into the kingdom, the millennial kingdom. So this is, this, all of this, phase two and phase three are what the scripture calls the first resurrection. I know this is confusing, so just follow me. Resurrection, the first resurrection is saints at the beginning and uh, believers in the church in phase three, phase three, which are the Old Testament believers as well as tribulation martyrs. The fourth phase of God's resurrection program is what Paul calls the end. The end. John 5, verse 29, Jesus calls it the resurrection of judgment. Or as Revelation 20, verse 6 calls it, the second death. Those are all talking about the same part of the resurrection. This, if you'll notice, the only people left are who? Unbelievers. This is a resurrection for unbelievers. These are the people that John says in verse 5, who did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. There is a resurrection that it will come for unbelievers in which they will be fit with glorified bodies, but not to enjoy eternity, but to suffer wrath and to be thrown into the lake of fire. And that is explained in verses 11 to 15 of Revelation 20. It's called the white throne judgment. So there are four phases to God's resurrection program. Christ, believing saints, the beginning of the tribulation. Old Testament saints and tribulation martyrs, that's phase three. And then the last step, the last phase of that is unbelievers at the end of, at the, end of the millennial kingdom as Christ establishes the new heavens and the new earth. So there are four phases. Now, back to our text. When is this judgment 
that Paul's talking about in our text, when does that happen? And that happens between phase two and phase three. So Christ returns, believers in the church are raised, raptured, they are forever with, heaven, with, with Christ in heaven. And uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, speaks about this. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. This is for believers. Romans 14, verse 20 calls, says we will all stand before the judgment seat. There's a specific term that Paul uses here in 2 Corinthians 5 and in Romans 14 and is referencing this judgment that we're talking about in our text this morning. And it is this word, bima. Bima. That's why we call this, theologians refer to it, to the bima seat judgment. A bima seat in the ancient world was a raised step of some kind, an elevated step where a judge would render a verdict on a court case of some kind. But it was also a raised platform where a judge of an athletic event would award the winner of the event. And that's the term, the way the term is used by Paul here. There is a judgment. We'll call it the bema seat judgment. Of, and it's the seat, and if we go back to our text, so we're back to 1 Corinthians 3 right now. We will give an accounting for our lives. It is called the Bema Seat of Christ. It involves believers. And this is not to render judgment over our sins. Okay? We need to make that clear. Because our sin was dealt with entirely where? At the cross. Right? Romans 8 Verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So whatever this judgment is, it has nothing to do with our sin. It has nothing to do with our sin. God's wrath for our sin was dealt with fully and finally at the cross. We are clothed in Christ with the righteousness of Christ. We, are, uh, we stand before him holy and blameless, the scripture says, not on the basis of our own works, but on the basis of faith. So whatever this Bema Seat judgment entails, we know it cannot be a judgment for sin. So what is it? What is this Bema Seat judgment for? And what's it all about? The short answer, it is a time of judgment when Christ will evaluate our labors for him. It is a time of testing and judgment when Christ will evaluate our labors for him, whether they were good, done in the power of the Holy Spirit for his glory, or bad, meaning worthless because they were done in the flesh. Just as in the daytime, right, everything is brought to light so we can see it for what it really is, so there is a future day, Paul says, when all our works as a whole, and particularly for building Christ's church, will be brought to the light and exposed for what quality they really are from God's perspective. Verse 13, each man's work will become evident, disclosed. For the day, the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And that fire will test the quality of each man's work. 
So this judgment, this Bema Seed judgment happens in heaven after the rapture, before Christ returns at the end of the tribulation. So the, when you see the church return in Revelation 19 and then verse 20, the church returns victorious and rewarded. Rewarded. Fire, this image of fire in verse 13 was a common image that the Old Testament text used to speak of judgment. Fire can do two things. It can either consume or it can purify and test. We know it doesn't, it doesn't consume because we're justified. We're declared not guilty on the basis of faith. So it has to test. That's the idea here. And just as an aside, total aside, this is not scriptural proof for the doctrine of purgatory, although it is used that way. He's not talking about purifying a person. What is he talking about purifying? Works. Our works, or revealing our works. God will test our work for him, not to render a guilty or innocent verdict over our lives, but for the purpose of rewarding each one according to their labor. Verse 8. This is a time of rewarding And God's testing our works doesn't just test the works themselves, but also our motivations. Because if you look at chapter 4, verse 5, he says, Do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. So this judgment strikes all the way down to the level of motivation. That is how clear it is. There is a testing here that is done by God, not like a test that a teacher gives you that you have to kind of, oh, you know, fill it out, get the right answers. But, but it is a test in the sense that it is a disclosure of approval or disapproval. God renders a definitive verdict on the workmanship and quality of our labors for Christ and his church. They're tested to see what they are. And what will be the outcome? Well, as we said, our whole point, there are two ways to build, and there are two outcomes. Two outcomes. Verse 14. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. And if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Either we have labored with the imperishable materials, gold, silver, precious stones of God's eternal wisdom, and that grounded upon the foundation of the gospel, and our efforts will receive God's nod of approval and a reward, Or we will have labored with the perishable materials of wood, hay, and straw of human wisdom, and our efforts will not receive the Lord's nod of approval, and whatever reward we might have had will be forever lost. Now, it doesn't mean we lose our salvation. And Paul is quick to clarify that in verse 15. He does not say we lose our salvation. He says he himself will be saved. But he qualifies it, yet so as through fire. He points out that what we forfeit is not eternal life, but rather the gracious rewards that would have enriched our enjoyment and our ability to, I don't know, 
glorify God in eternity, in the new heaven, new earth. He says, those who labor according to man's wisdom, he says, you will be saved, yet so as through fire. Yet so as through fire. Likely, that is borrowing the image of Amos chapter 4 and verse 11, where God says of Israel, you will be like a firebrand snatched from the blaze. Or as Jude talks about in Jude verse 23, we are to save others, he says, snatching them out of the fire. He says, you'll be saved, but you will be saved by the skin of your teeth. That's what the vernacular, that would how we would say that today. The implication is that the person going further and further down the road of worldly wisdom, they're in grave danger. They're in grave danger. And that basically he or she will be like a person pulled out of the rubble just in the nick of time. Hopefully. It made me think of, uh, I don't know, a dozen action movies where you see the, the main character running and the ground falling out underneath him as he, you know, final leap at the end, grabs hold and pulls himself free. That's what the picture is here. You're running, but the ground is caving underneath you, and at any moment you could slip and fall. This is not the idea of how anyone should want to run the race of their Christian life. I do not want to end my Christian life yet so as through fire. And neither should you. So this is, make no mistake about it, this is a word of warning to the church. And it needs to be taken seriously. But at the same time, it is also a word of hope. One and the same. We must beware how we build. It starts with those of us who have the responsibility to lead Christ's church Elders, deacons, those of us who are tasked with this responsibility of shepherding the flock of God. But it also extends all the way down to every member because you're also part of the body of Christ. And we are all tasked with this responsibility of making and maturing disciples. And you have a choice and I have a choice. We can build the church with every imaginable idea you can think of, pop psychology, management techniques, felt needs, false doctrine, personal grievances, you name it, we can build an audience on those things. But in the final judgment, all that building will be exposed for what it really is. It's worthless. It'll burn up because there's nothing of Christ in it. There's nothing of the gospel in it. There's nothing of God's word in it. And even if there was, perhaps there was, but maybe we were doing it for self-centered and fleshly motives, even that will not count. But on the other hand, and this is Paul's point, we can build as Paul did as a wise master builder. We, we can build on the foundation of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we can build according to his word and for his glory, not our own. And when we stand before our Lord, we will pass through that final testing. And our work will pass through that fire, so to speak. And what remains will be a glorious church. And those who labored will receive a gracious reward. 
I'm just reminded of the famous poem by uh, C.T. Studd. He says, only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. All this other stuff, it's going to burn up. It's going to burn up. I had a pastor when I was in seminary. He, uh, he, he worked hard, really hard. Sometimes people said he worked, we said he worked a little too hard, needed to just dial it back a notch. I said, why are you doing all this? And he said to us men in a meeting, he said, I just want something left over at the end. That's why he did what he did. And that is in the end what we as pastors and shepherds want for you. We want something left over at the end. We want your labors for Christ to rest on the foundation of the gospel. And we want them to endure. Look back with me for just one final moment here in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. We, we said that this text, verse 10, speaks about this Bema seat judgment. We must all be, appear before the Bema of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds according to what he has done, whether good or bad. But that is an explanation of the preceding verse. The four at verse 10 is a, is sort of gives the reason for why what he says in verse 9 is the case. Why? What does he say? What is it, what's the reason that he longs to... He says in verse 9, whether we are at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. And the, the reason he has that longing is because he knows we all have to appear before the, the seat of God. That's the motivation to do all we do to be pleasing to the Lord so that we might stand before him in that final day and receive a reward. That there would be something left over, so to speak. This is Paul's warning to the church and it's his warning to us. There are two ways to build. There's one foundation. The foundation is Christ. There's no other foundation. And even then, we must build according to God's word and according to the materials that he's given us with the right heart and the right motivation to be pleasing to him. Not to gain an audience, not to build an organization, not to build a platform for ourselves, not to have other people like us, but to be pleasing to him. That was not the motivation the Corinthians were wrestling with. And we need to take to heart Paul's warning and his encouragement. And next week, he will take us back to remind us why we need to be careful. We need to be careful not to divide the church. He gives one of the most powerful and forceful warnings against division. This is really what he's been driving at the whole time. This has been the issue that he's been correcting. All of this is sort of teeing that up, and we'll look at that next Sunday. Let's pray. Father, thank you.
Thank you for Paul's example. He built as a wise master builder. And the foundation that he laid through the gospel, anchored by the cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ, you, Lord, are the cornerstone. That foundation laid is the foundation that we now are building upon. We pray that we would be faithful in that, that we would not get distracted by the things of this world, the wisdom of this world, and get caught up in all of that, but instead would our efforts would be grounded in Christ and that they might remain. Lord, give us a heart to do that. Draw us into, uh, draw our hearts back to you where we have gone astray. And may you build this church with gold, silver, precious stones that it might withstand that final test. Lord, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. That concludes this recording. We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio, or information about Cascades Bible Church, visit us online at cascadesbiblechurch.com.